1: Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. And welcome to episode 151. You'd think my fingers would be red raw after all that bongo banging. Well a big shout out to our Patreon supporters without whom we would not be able to produce this podcast. A podcast which is not governed by advertisers, but is instead supported by its listener. So if you like what you hear, and you'd like to support us for as little as £3 a month, just go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile, You'll see a link tree drop down box and in there you can get directed straight over to the Patreon page. And if you're not able to do that, that's absolutely fine. This content is free for everyone. Well, I've had plenty of messages from people saying that they've been down to the Kersler show at the South Bank Centre and just how much they've enjoyed it. Well, it's on until the 5th of December. So if you are passing, I urge you to go and have a look around. And if you listen to last week's episode, you'll be aware that there are feedback forms you can fill in. Please complete at least one, it does go directly back to the artist, and it is a real morale boost. But anyway, getting back to today's episode. If you listened last week, you'll be expecting David Tovey. Unfortunately, that episode has got to be re-recorded, which we are going to do over the next few weeks. But today, however, is the first that I've done recorded in front of a live audience. It was recorded at the Factory Project, which I was a part of via the Skip Gallery and the Ministry of Arts was a part of via Gallery No. 32. But today's guest, Rosalind Davis, was one of its curators. Well, Roslyn and I spoke just before the show opened and we both thought it would be a great idea to have a conversation live and have it recorded. So please, come and join Rosalind Davis and I as we spoke live at Thorpe Stavry's Factory Project let's go in there. We're all good
3: to go. Okay. Welcome everyone. Thank you for coming uh, to the factory project project where I'm curating a show uh, called Trace Elements 1971. My name is Rosalind Davis. This is Gary Mansfield.
2: <laughs> Hello. <laughs>
3: Sorry, I just jumped in there <laughs> for you. <laughs> um, he who also has a piece in the show with a uh, Gallery well Skip Gallery, which we'll go and have a look at after yeah. So um, welcome to those of you that are listening. Um, we just wanted to have a conversation, really, about art and life and our various sort of uh, challenges and joys of being artists. So it's not um, it's not super planned, but we've had lots of good chats already. So. Feels <laughs> uh, like we're
2: going to sing, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> it does.
3: Some karaoke is <laughs> going to happen later. Um, we're going to share our favourite songs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Islands in the Stream. Oh God. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: Um, yes, so um we're here in Trace Elements w- within the exhibition that Thorpe Stavbery have organised, so massive thanks to them of what's been like a really ambitious, epic adventure project. It's been amazing, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been really amazing. Um so we're really privileged and we just wanted to make the most of it. Um and you can hear more about Trace Elements nineteen seventy one in our online talk on my website or Thorpe Stavberies about the show, but we're gonna talk about Gary and me today. <laughs> yeah
2: a bit self-indulgent
3: <laughs> so yeah which is
2: my favorite subject
3: <coughs> well 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 no not at all <laughs> um so one of the things we we're going to kick off with was how did you become an artist
2: well my track into art is a little different from most um i got sentenced to 14 years for drugs while i was uh, when i was 26 i got set up by a drugs gang um i was always a criminal but um I always used to work with fake clothing and one day I um I went to pick up a big lot of fake clothing and drop it off to some guys in Birmingham on my way to Liverpool and in amongst that big batch of clothing was four point two million pounds worth of class A drugs. And um and then yeah, so my life got diverted a little bit on, <laughs> little that, bit. on that sunny Saturday morning. <laughs> Um, yeah, went into prison, got sentenced to 14 years, went into a high security prison on the Isle of Sheppey, um, and just thought it's time to change my life, you know. I'd seen it rip my family apart, me going to prison, and, um, yeah, I thought I'd get into computers, and there was a big waiting list for the computer class, but the way that you could jump the, um, the list was to go into another class within education, so I went into art because that was the always the fun lesson at school. You know, you didn't have to work too much. So, um, yeah, I went in there and just fell in love with art, really. And, um, yeah, then discovered conceptual art via the um, Sensations catalogue. Um, and, again, fell for that so much so that I even refer to myself as a born-again artist because it was pretty much overnight that I... Um, Fell in love with conceptual art, and I ended up writing to um, 32 of the artists in that catalogue um, to find out more about conceptual art. And out of that 32, 28 replied. The likes of well, who are now the A-listers of the the British art world, you know, the Sarah Lucas, Tracy Emin, Gavin Turk, and and all of those names combined. So, and yourself, how did you get into art? <laughs> <laughs> Was yours? What women's prison was Uh, you in?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't um, quite the same pathway. (laughs) Um, No, um, I come from a very creative family, and my dad was an artist. Um, And that's why I didn't want to become an artist, (laughs) in the sense of, um, you know, it's a tough tough life. And I just thought I wanted something different. And so I was going to, like, I dabbled with the idea of becoming a lawyer... And then I was actually going to university to do creative writing and drama, um, in in Norwich, and for I just but I said Look, I'll do a year's foundation course. I just let myself have that, and then I kind of fell in love with Chelsea, <laughs> and also other things were going on. I didn't want to leave my brother in London, and I I uh, very much wanted to kind of have some stability, and it felt like leaving London just felt too overwhelming and yeah so Chelsea kind of basically I did a mixed media textile degree so I didn't do fine art um I decided that if I was going to have a creative um kind of life that would be within more of an industry-led one (laughs) that might be more stable uh which the textiles industry is not but um I thought that might be a way for me to channel my creativity but have a more sort of sustainable kind of thing um, and then <clears throat> I went from Chelsea to Royal College of Art because that, that also like kind of grabbed me, and I was like, well, why not? Um, if I can get in, why not? Um, and I carried on with RCA Textiles, but yeah, the whole time thinking I was gonna leave and do. I was working a lot with sort of um, materials, which I still do, um, transforming materials, and I thought I'd go and work in like a couture house in Paris or something. And then mid RCA. Well, actually, the first year, I had a, I had a breakdown, basically. Um, as most people did, in more or less forms, I, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I was, like, weaving a basket or something. It was like, <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> and um, like I had some serious conversations with my tutors about, you know, potentially leaving and not knowing what I was doing there. And um, kind of gradually came through that to painting again. And I got taught by the professor of painting... Graham Crowley and I kind of found my way back but it was really hard I think um, and I, d- I did try and reject it and then leaving the Royal College I was you know making paintings and that's sort of where I started heading but uh, yeah so it was um, it was a kind of strange path in a way even though it might seem obvious that if your dad's an artist you might be or my mum's a milliner and a designer and and all my family are creative, but then you sort of also sometimes want to buck the trend, don't you? I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and then I never did. But I ended up curating a gallery in a law
2: firm. So there it's all goes. gone full circle. Met and
3: wrote, wrote a book. So, you know, it kind of ended so up. So, when
2: did you decide that you wanted to be an artist?
3: Um, when I was at the RCA, I think, really, I thought, I'm not going to be a designer. I can't kind of live in that way of trends and mood boards i needed to make work that felt meaningful i mean not that textiles isn't but i just mean for me i felt like i wanted to go and paint buildings and paint pictures of buildings and and sort of social housing and the social commentary and the history and the politics and that's not something you can really translate into like luxury textiles necessarily so um i was very much like yeah i need to i need it to feel like more
2: so what was your journey after you left college?
3: Well, um, I was still like, I was doing these paintings of like dystopian social housing um, places, uh, buildings, and thinking about the commentary behind that. And I was, ex- I started to have exhibitions. I, I'd invited people to, that I felt would be interested in my work to the RCA. And I was offered a couple of exhibitions off the back of it. But I was also running a textiles kind of business because uh, my tutors were like, yeah, but you know what the buildings would look really good on skirts yeah and I was like, oh okay uh, so I tried that <laughs> for a bit and it did and it, and it was interesting I showed them in gallery context but it was like a blind alley really um, but yeah I just kind of exhibited and I was I mean s- probably the same as you in the sense of like juggling lots of other plates working part-time. Te- started to teach I was working in a design studio set up arts organizations and so on um and then I kind of realized that I was just bleeding money from this so-called design area the fashion design I was just like I've got all these skirts with buildings on that nobody wants <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't particularly yeah. interested in it so I couldn't like you know you need to have like 100% like marketing head-on yeah. with that and like doing fashion shoots and I really did I, I just wanted to make paintings and actually they were selling you know um being shown or you know people having interest in them and i was like what am i doing but i think that's what we do isn't it we go down blind alleys
2: and where was it you was teaching
3: i was i taught all over the place um and i still do i was teaching i started with a mixed media workshop at the stephen lawrence center and i taught these young girls um mixed media painting really and collage and talking to them about the urban landscape and uh i went from there really and so i did like practical workshops but then i went on to just make do lectures and teach artists about surviving after art school. And
2: I went to one of those. Yeah, I
3: know.
2: <laughs> went to one of those in... Back
3: in the day? Yeah. Yeah, what did you get from that?
2: What, how the, did the, the one thing that I've always remembered is that you said that when you um, get an image of your work, to title it underneath was to put all of the information about <laughs> that artwork there. Yes. And that's the one thing that I... I, that i kept from there you oh know, thank I, god. I, I listen to all of it <laughs> but whenever i put an image up of my work the title embedded within it is the title the size the material the price the you know and mm-hmm. on and on as much information as you can put on there
3: thank god at least somebody's learned that <laughs> i bang on and on about it but yeah it's such a help. i've been
2: bankrupt twice as an artist but other than no <laughs> never
3: so how did you like so you come out of prison you're like, I'm going to be an artist now. I mean, how does that all work? How does oh, that I, all segue?
2: I started... Um, I, I got the GMVQ intermediate and advanced while I was in prison. Um, then I applied to the University of East London, and that course started about three weeks before I was released. So I was going from prison in Richmond to University of East London in, well, just along the road here... Um, and that was for three weeks, and that was a little bit difficult coming from a, well, from a prison and everything you expect to be in a prison, going into a very liberal place. And bearing in mind I'd been away for seven years, it was it felt strange being around women and right, and yeah. like young people as well, you know, because it was mainly um, twenty three year olds and upwards. And then all of a sudden I'm in a in a uh, a building in an environment that is mainly. 18 19 year olds and 50 percent female mm. and it, it, i know it sounds quite strange to say that 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 one would find that um a bit hard to deal with but but it was it's, Ooh, it's an adjustment yeah and um but yeah th- i've done the degree there started a master's um straight afterwards and then my partner become pregnant and couldn't afford both couldn't put the kid on ebay <laughs> so I had, to, <laughs> I had to give up the Masters. And um, I, I thought I'd try and sort of make a little bit of work um, during that time. But I, I had aspirations of being a, you know an artist doing these big installations. And because I couldn't do them, I, um, I took a bit of a childish approach and just blanked art altogether. Mm. I didn't look at it, read about it. Um, if it came on the telly, I turned it over. It pretty much felt like um you know, if, if you finished a relationship and you you're always yearning for that person, you get that little knot in your stomach, you know, and that's what I was with art. But I just not left it out of my life for about five or six years. And um then I got invited to a talk by a friend who was a um an art teacher, or a technician rather. And um yeah, we went to a talk at the Foundling Museum. Um and I didn't know that Tracy Emin was going to be talking there, and I knew Tracy, and I'd seen her, and she sort of, you know, said hello to me, and she's come over, and um, in amongst all these very nice people, she was giving me a bollocking for um, for not getting on with art, because I gave her this noble story that. You know, it was, and I said the same thing. You know, it's like a relationship, and you know, I can't. I'm suffering for my art, so I blanked it out my life. You know, and then she just went, "What do you mean?" She said, "Art changed your life. It changed your identity. Um, yeah, and how can you turn your back on art after all it's done for you?" And um, I pretty much agreed to do it just to sort of shut her up, really, because <laughs> everyone was like looking round at us, you know, and um, even while. Um, even while she was giving her talk, um, I was leaning up against this grand piano. If you've ever been in there, there's a grand piano in, in the larger room, and I'm leaning up against that, sort of minding my own business, and then she started at me again, you know, wagging her finger at me on the, on the stage, and, yeah, that sort of made me get back into it, you know, well, accept it back into my life.
3: <laughs> what was the first thing you made then, after that?
2: Well, I, I sort of done a little... Um, I had a little sort of deal with myself. I was working in a in a newspaper plant that printed newspapers. And um, I was in a very large area, about as big as this, and there was a, a large wall. And um, I, I sort of set a little challenge to myself, and I said that if I can do a, a quite a, an epic-sized artwork and pull it off, then I know that I'm good enough and I will go back into it. And I'd always had a bit of an affinity with um Marcus Harvey's Myra that was made of the handprints um, so I went to the bosses there and I said can I do this painting of um, a face of whose face I don't know I didn't make any references to Myra Hindley that wouldn't have gone down well <laughs> but I said like we you know we, there was hundreds of people working there so I said like I could use the handprints of everyone and um, so my mate who was a technician who worked with public art I said to I Pulled him down and I said, "Like I'm going to do a Marcus Harvey on there," and uh, he said, uh, "Have you experimented with it?" I said, "I'll just sort of, more or less wing it, you know, make it up as I go along." And he said, "No, don't, don't do that." <laughs> but I did, and um, yeah, they agreed to it. And I mean, they, they wanted a, a picture. I can't even remember her name now, but it was a page-free girl, and it was just. Oh
3: yeah.
2: I was going to say a bust, but that's the wrong <laughs> thing to say, really. Is it? But it was like just from from there up and um yeah and, and it it worked it, it worked very well so i was like oh that's what i'm gonna do now so for the next couple of years i'm um, i sort of um started making artworks but i saw straight away that i was going into projects rather than artworks you yeah. Know? yeah and yeah so that was my entrance back into it
3: wow and who was that with showing with
2: no, that wasn't. That was that was actually on a wall, oh, so okay. it couldn't it couldn't go anywhere. No, okay. But that was a little challenge for me to, to myself because I thought, well, if I can pull this off, and it was, it was rather technical, mm-hmm. um, and I thought I'd, I'd just give myself a challenge. If I can pull it off, then I'll do it. You know, I'll go back into art. If I can't, then I'm not good enough. And that was, you know, I would give myself a black and white line. You know, I draw a line in the sand, and <laughs> and yeah, it just so happened that yeah, it works.
3: And so, what you, your kind of passions in terms of the artwork you're making, in terms of what you want to address, or the themes in your work?
2: Well, at the moment, or have they always been? Yeah, I guess. I but it's always been. I, I was making work like rather large projects. I was doing. I ended up doing, and they they did seem a little bit discombobulated. You know, I didn't quite. Like, and that was mentally. They all worked well set together, <coughs> but. I, 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 Mentally, I didn't know where they was, how they was all tied together, and um, it wasn't until um, I was watching a program one time, and I, w- I was just doing a project where, which you know about, called um, Walk a Mile, where I'd put a shout out to artists and ask them to send me a pair of shoes with a a letter or a note um, to tell me of a problem or something that they've carried around with themselves for years. And what I was going to do, I was going to walk a mile in their shoes, as the proverb is, and, you know, never judge a man till you walk a mile in his shoes. So I was going to walk a mile in their shoes. And when I finished, then I would read that letter or the, the problem, give my own judgment, but not tell anyone. So, you know, by proxy, I'm the only one who can judge them because no one else has walked in their shoes. And um, I forgot where I was going with this.
3: Well, I remember you saying about having to walk a mile in the shoes. Yeah, so I like ended up, women's up with. Women's shoes. Oh man, <laughs> I ended
2: up with high heels shoes. Around an estate. And as you can see, I'm not built for <laughs> high heel shoes, you know. Um, and I live on a, a council estate in, in Essex East London Boulder. And yeah, walking around in, in ladies' shoes for a mile isn't a good thing. But I've done it. And I, um, I'd gaffer take the shoes on. If they were small shoes, um, like I'm a size 11 so if they was anything smaller than well smaller than 11 I had to tie them on so <laughs> I'd strap them on and walk half a mile then walk half a mile back you know and um, if I can just sort of tell a quite a humorous story I'd um. so I'd because I worked in this newspaper plant as you may be aware they finish at like 3 in the morning so I'm back home by 4, half 4 so that was an ideal time on my estate to walk around in women's shoes you know because no one can fucking see you so that's what I'd done. So I'd put these shoes on, walk half a mile, come back, I'd um, take a photograph of these shoes, cut them off with a Stanley knife, read the letter, and then as I'm doing this, a police car has come into the car park of these flats. So I've seen them, and I'm just finishing off anyway, I'm about to go back <laughs> upstairs, have, have I told you this? I heard it. And, um,
3: I heard it on your podcast. And then...
2: <laughs> So these cops have come along. They've pulled in, and they've said, "Excuse me, why did you take a photograph of us when we drove past?" I said, "I didn't see you drive past. I just took a photograph of my feet." He went, "And why would you do that?" And I said, "I'm I'm an artist, and I'm I'm saying it with a grin, you know. I've only just decided to call myself an artist." I said, "I'm an artist working on this project, and uh, I've got this bag with me." And he went, "What's in the bag?" And I've just gone, oh, for fuck's sake. It's like a, it looks like a kidnap kit. You know, I've got a Stanley knife, a letter from a woman and a pair of high heel shoes. You know, it's, it's every fucking, you know, Hollywood movie script on its own, you know. So um, I've started laughing and I've showed them. And uh, I said, look, have you got Twitter? Because I've just got, i just started on Twitter. This was, I think it was 2012. And both of them said no. So I said, look, if you come back upstairs outside my Um, front door I've got a cupboard I've said I've got like about by this time I had about 60 pairs of shoes which just made me look like a serial kidnapper you know (laughs) so um we're walking up there and I'm thinking like this isn't it started off funny and I thought I can go back into prison for this you know and um but I I was joking about it and and they've realized in the end that it was an art project and then you know like my partner come out because she heard the noise and you know, she see me standing there with two policemen and, you know, loads of pairs of high heels and strange shoes in my hand. But yeah, that was that was quite a thing.
3: <laughs> Imagine the stories they're telling. About oh, yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd
2: yeah. be one of those. They'd be telling it just like I am, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we saw this big bloke once in a pair of ladies' shoes. Yeah, a Stanley knife and a roll of gaffer tape. <laughs>
3: Turns out it was ours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so
2: he says. <laughs> amazing,
3: <laughs> amazing. And what have you sort of found to be... Obviously, you had the huge challenge of having to be in prison. Um, but challenges of the art world, is, I mean, that's like small fry comparatively. But then again, this is your life now as well. So what do you find challenging about being an artist?
2: Um, I mean, I've I've come to terms with the fact that I've stopped chasing to try to get my work shown in galleries and stuff like that. Because that wasn't doing me any favours at all I've, I've got to the point now where I just make my work show it and stuff has, Well, stuff luckily stuff has started to come from that anyway but I, I did stop chasing galleries a while ago mm. um, but yeah I found the empathy um, go, go, sorry going back to the last question it was empathy that I found was a reoccurring theme um, in all of the artwork, and that's still sort of pretty much prevalent. Empathy and social injustice mm. is what I see in my work now. Um, but yeah, as far as the art world goes, I'm um, yeah I've, I've stopped chasing trying to get in the galleries. Mm. And yourself.
3: Well, which part the well, challenges yeah, uh, or, no, or the it's, empathy? It's quite <laughs> a big, yeah,
2: no, the, the challenges. Uh, because you went in from being an artist and i knew you straight away as being a curator or a voice within the art world for other artists that was before i knew you as an artwork um, as an artwork (laughs) As 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 an artist
3: yeah i um i think what happened is when i graduated like i said i had some shows i had quite a lot of shows um and sort of Eventually got a studio in uh, called Blimey Arts. And then that was five years after art school. And kind of realising the potential to make something happen. But also having had lots of experiences in the art world. All kinds of different galleries and curators. And thinking I could do something that could be more empathetic actually towards artists. As the kind of central concern of what I was thinking about. And how I wanted to have shows. How I wanted to kind of have... An education program for artists for all the things that I didn't learn at art school which is not necessarily down to anyone else's fault but mine um but um I was like I'm just trying to figure out this art world thing and maybe I can help other people through the things I've experienced and bring other people in so it sort of started like that um in terms of yeah putting artists at the center and then it went on to become core gallery and then zeitgeist arts projects and um, writing what they didn't teach you in art school, the kind of tail end of that. But I think the challenges was that there was a lack of empathy. There is a lack of empathy for, you know, as artists. You know, you're you're part of a machine sometimes, is what I felt, and I wanted to change that. that idea. I mean, even, you know, what I wanted to get out of it, what I was lacking was a network. Before I started this gallery, like these kind of arts organisations, I was... Lacking a network, I was lacking insight into artists, really. And so when I set up stuff, it was we'd always have artist talks and we'd put things on like that so that I could learn and feed myself and nourish myself because I wasn't getting it in the art world yeah. in that way, you know. And uh, I've shown with a lot of amazing people. I mean, a lot of the places I show my work with and often in collaboration with Justin Hibbs, is in artist-led spaces and in in off-site spaces and yes, there's occasionally a commercial gallery in there but um, it's about like not chasing that. Not that I did but I think everyone has an idea and I mentor a lot of people that have an idea that they just want this commercial gallery to come and save them and the the gold at the end of the rainbow and it's very different. You know, um, Justin, he's shown with a lot of large kind of um, contemporary galleries across the world and it's, it's brilliant but it's also, it's a, it's another relationship to manage and I'm also very very independent and I don't like to have a dependent relationship yeah. <laughs> where I'm flavour of the month one month and uh, and you know um, so I, I'm slightly aversive to it in a way, I mean it's not there's been great things and stuff but yeah I do part of me curating is creating my own context and showing with the artists that I want to show and Having a bit of control, though I'm very easygoing curator. I'm very organised, but I'm not controlling. <laughs> I just like to put myself in the picture yeah. with everyone. Yeah.
2: Well, I've found that if I'm looking at empathy <coughs> in my work or trying to show empathy, um, when it comes to working with galleries, mm. it's it's like an empathy vacuum a lot of the time. You know, the the person you're talking to personally may have some, but yeah, when when they start. I mean, th- they're there to make money. So yeah,
3: that's what y- you have you to understand. You can't have money
2: and empathy. They, they, they outweigh each other.
3: Yeah, and that's what you have to explain to people. Y- you know, you're dealing with something that's a business that, you know, needs to make money. So, yeah. you know, the first thing I ask people, that always say, I want a gallery, want a gallery. So, like, well, how much work have you sold? Because they'll be interested once you've sold a lot of work. Yeah. Because that, that's their business risk, you know. It's, you know, it's that.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one. Um and as I say, w- with the, when, when I discovered it was empathy, I mean, the, the worst thing that I found out is that I, I saw a guy on TV talking about his book that he was making, that he was just publishing about empathy. So that's when I discovered I, that's the word that, mm. that I was looking for. So I've contacted this guy and um, I told him about the Walk and Mile project. And he was, I, I don't know if I've told you this previously, but he was tweeting about my project. He's writing a book on empathy. And, you know, I had loads of response from his followers because he was pretty well known. And, um, and then I started um, using empathy as sort of like a hashtag, if you like, you know, mentioning it more in my work. And then um, a guy who from the BBC that had recorded um, an interview with me a few weeks previous, a few months previous, sorry, he'd um, he contacted me and said, "There's a another, there's a gallery called the Empathy Gallery, who are doing something exactly the same as your project, but rather than um, getting, uh, how are they doing it? Sorry, they was getting pairs of shoes off people and the story, but then they was recording it so that people could listen to the stories, and then walk a mile in these shoes." So I said, "Well, I don't sort of own that." proverb you know it's, it's out there for anyone um and he was saying that they even mentioned me during their um because he, he was employed to do the recordings he said during the meeting they even sort of m- mentioned you in your project so i just sort of had a look afterwards and i saw that the empathy gallery wasn't a building it was a transient gallery um, and then i looked and there was it was a whole pyramid of mm. of employees and a board and you know trustees but then when I looked at the CEO, it was the guy that I told about my project six months previous. And now they're doing one. And then it it's travelled all around the bloody world. And I put mine, because I, I thought, well, you know, this is a big gallery. Mm. Um, they've got plenty of money. It's been, as I said, it's travelled around the world. People are going to see my one as the one that's copied theirs, you know? know. And, um, yeah, to make it worse, I'm now a, I'm a trustee of a charity that's got a, a big exhibition on this month at the um, South Bank Centre and I just saw just yesterday that that same project, which is called uh, A Mile In My Shoes, they're outside the South Bank Centre on the, on the day of the bloody opening of this project. Oh
3: my God. Yeah, I
2: know. So there might be a little fire on the South Bank. <laughs> 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 yeah, they've got a big container that's a shoebox, you know.
3: And they never ever acknowledged... Your project? No,
2: I, I left it. I even joined their project. I thought, well, I'm just—I didn't want to come across as a bitter and twisted ex-prisoner, you know, moaning about this this project and making a fuss about it, because I thought, well, these—I these still had a chip on my shoulder about being an ex-prisoner, you know, and I thought, well, if I start making a fuss about this, I'm just going to come across as a bitter and twisted ex-prisoner with all of these people who are in the art world, and um, you know, there was people with doctorates and, and all sorts in in this pyramid of of people and i thought well, i'm i'm fighting a losing battle so i thought i'll just join them and see if i can get any like little pickings in mm. their wake you know so i i did do i was in part of two of their projects and then it was just eating away and eating away and because my first instinct is my old instinct is just knock on someone's door and sort of have it out with them you know and yeah I was fighting that all the time and it was getting so strong that I just left and didn't you know wasn't a part of them anymore Mm. until I heard the curator on a on a podcast with a gallery in 2016 a few years later and they said like where did you get the idea from and even out loud I was going please say my name please say my name and she said oh it's, it's an old Indian proverb and then i I sort of spiraled into a little bit of depression after that
3: i'm not surprised and then
2: i did contact them and and said like you know i i had to go and see someone in the end because it was eating me up so much you know and um they said to me like contact them and just mention it and i did do and um and i said look just could you just put my name in there in amongst the gumph you've got i said i'm not asking for money i don't want my name in lights just mention that you know it's an idea based on an artwork by gary mansfield and uh yeah they have come back and said uh no it was nothing to do with your project and i was like oh, okay and I, I didn't know where to go with that because that's you know i'm used to people saying yes when i ask them for stuff being a, a big old you know i was always a, a minder a doorman and You know, so I'm used to people sort of um, saying yes when I asked them nicely and they didn't, so I didn't know what to do with that.
3: Yeah, that's hard. I mean, there is art law um, with ArtQuest where you can (laughs) ask them for legal advice. It's really, really hard to prove
2: your own thing. I knew well enough that I was... And it's
3: hard. I know other people that have been affected by either people saying that they'd copied them when they clearly had, like, they had... Like you know, so when people say, "Oh, your work looks a bit like Santa's, and you like I've never heard of them. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's come back on.
2: Them. But the curator was well well respected. <coughs> um, and you know, but I had tweets from the from the, you know, the, the main man six months previous. You know. What was his name? Roman, something. I can't remember his. He blocked it, it out. He was an Eastern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't get to his name without my gums bleeding. <laughs> we won't. We won't. He um, won't uh,
3: reopen that wound. <laughs> no. No. I'm
2: all right with it now. I'm all right. <laughs> he says through gritted teeth and yeah. tearing eyes.
3: Well, that's yeah. That's really hard, and that can knock the socks out of kind of doing work and thinking it might be taken out of your control as well yeah. I think is the other thing isn't
2: it well the thing was I knew that it was uh, and this isn't big-headed at all but I knew it was a good idea it just had it had everything you know it was it was compassionate it had a, a good element Ev- everyone that saw it and took part in it um, uh, liked it people saw it online I was getting messages back from people online saying about how much of a beautiful project it is and I felt like I'd peaked at the start of my arty career, yeah, yeah. and that was it. My, I'd had my, my big, my good idea right at the start, and um, it got snatched away from me. But someone else did say, like, you know, you're, you're on a, the start of your journey, you've had a great idea, you're an artist, you make great ideas. Yeah. It's just when the next one comes. So,
3: what was the next one after that then?
2: I've not had one. <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> No, several years later, I had an idea about scars because I had a, uh, two friends that had the same scar on their face. It was like a J shape that came from, like, along oh, yeah. Siberia and hooked up. One was a girl, one was a boy. This yeah. is when, when I was like 18. And the guy had one, he was attacked with a knife, but the girl was in a car crash. Mm. And. Funnily enough, they used to go out with each other. Really? And oh. th- yeah, I know. <laughs> and, but they had this similar scar. know it was a really quite a prevalent scar, you know. But people always used to see Peter um, and look at him. And, th- and you'd see people go, oh, he looks a bit tasty. You know, I oh, bet he can have a row. But he was a victim, you know. And the girl, when they saw her, Karen, they'd like feel a bit of empathy towards her straight away because it was a woman with this large facial scar Mm. and even then like you know we'd say it's funny how people look at woman with a scar and a man with a scar but with two different attitudes they're afraid of this guy so i wanted to do something along that line and um i thought of um how people get plastic surgery now to enhance their look I could imagine guys wanting to try to look tough by having this uh, plastic surgery scar put on their face. You never know. People have done worse. Yeah, yeah. So I sort of went down that line, and I'd heard about rappers who sort of get themselves shot and stuff like that to try and look good. Yeah. And um, then I saw an actor on telly called Michael K. Williams, Mm. who died recently of a drug overdose in America, and he's got a scar from his forehead to his chin where he was attacked on his 25th birthday and he always plays a gangster so i contacted him i saw him on twitter one time because i start used to start work at the same place but a different job i used to start work at like quarter to six in the morning and i saw him online really early in the morning and i was just typing out this um message that i was going to send to people that i know have got scars so i sent it to him and he replied straight away He said, I like the idea of this, send me some more information and gave him his email address. Then he said he's over in the UK in the spring Mm. and he'll be a part of it. So I was like, fucking hell. All of a sudden it's become real. It was only a theory earlier, you know. And then I met up with him in Sloan Square, uh, not Sloan Square, um, where was it, Kensington. Mm. So um, I was outside Kensington Station and if you've seen him, he's like a...
3: He's amazing. He's a handsome black
2: guy, but he dresses like... He used to play a guy called... Um, oh, what was his name in The Wire? Yeah, he he
3: was um the kind of... He was the one like everyone the Robin was Hoods, scared of, yeah. yeah. Oh, what was his name? El-
2: not Elmo. Omar. No. Omar, Omar. And they used to say, Omar's coming, and everyone yeah. used to run. Well, I'm waiting outside Kensington Station. It was very busy, and then all of a sudden you see this black guy walking along with... He had swagger. You know, yeah, he was yeah, from yeah, New York. Yeah, you yeah. could tell that. He had this big scar down his face, and there was like this... <clears throat> white middle class like ocean of people just like, making way for him <laughs> and we've met up, we've gone in a, a coffee bar and uh, I sort of mentioned that to him and um, yeah he said that he, he sort of gets that quite often and I saw him as being a, a villainous type person because of the scar and it turns out he was a, um, a cura- curator choreographer for um, Crystal Waters the, mm. um, the singer and uh so he'd he'd put on all these dance acts in the, in the videos. Yeah, he was a Madonna's dancer. It, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, he'd, he'd, he was a dancer, and then on his twenty fifth birthday, and um, they was all out celebrating in Brooklyn, and one of his friends was being attacked outside the club. So he's gone to try and break it up. Then he got Smashed, cut with his yeah. knife, and it's disfigured him. So. He put himself when he w- used to do the videos. After he would put himself at the back because he didn't want this scar scene because he, you know, it sort of ruined his identity, if you like. But then he'd done a few for rappers, and they was going, "Now nah, we want you down the front because you look the part," you know. Mm. And um, that happened all the time. And I can't remember the name of the rappers, but it was it was well, it was ones that I'd heard of, so they must be <laughs> they must be well known, you know. Yeah. And um. Yeah, they, they kept putting him down the front and then someone said about him doing acting and yeah, the rest was, was history. But yeah, I contacted him. We spoke about his scar and we were talking about Katie Piper, um, who, if you don't know, she was a, a, a model that got attacked with acid um, about 10 years ago. And um, we were saying about how scars for him has elevated him. Uh, would, he be, would he be a Hollywood actor if he didn't have this scar or would he still be a choreographer, you know? Um, and like Katie Piper, she was a, a sort of relatively well-known model or, or what they would call a jobbing model. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden now she's a, a well-known figure in, in the media. And um, we was talking about that. We started talking about Katie Piper. I mentioned Peter and Karen who both had the scars, the empathy going towards the female and um yeah that's where the next project ended up going um it was a project called i called um face value and looking at the change of identity in the eyes of society and the value that people put on that identity when it's changed Mm. um i asked 30 artists to donate me an artwork and i would disfigure them um within the context of the artwork or the artist um put them up for sale in an exhibition and say that um like you know if the art if the artwork was worth 500 pounds initially after i damaged it um i put it up for up for sale and people could pay what they want if they didn't want to pay 500 pound then they're of the mindset that um the new identity given to this artwork by another person isn't worth as much Mm. um and that's what I've done and it was very successful and yeah it went down it went down extremely well a lot better than I expected and uh, it's gone on to now uh, face value four was about to start just before pandemic right. and um but yeah very good
3: so you're curating that yes yeah and
2: yes. how do you
3: find curating
2: um I always enjoyed it Wh- when I'd go to exhibitions I'd sort of, I I would think to myself, oh, I wouldn't have put that there, <laughs> and I and I'd do it all the time, being sort of not picky, but just sort of like trying to rearrange it in my mind. And when I like, when I go with friends, they was always going like, y- you know, you should be a bloody cur- curator. Yes, that's, that's where you're going with it all the time, you know. And um, yeah, I enjoy it a lot because it's theatrical, isn't it? It's you're making something for people to come and um, yeah to come and observe there. Yeah, I like the idea of that. Mm. It's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult yeah. a lot. It's very difficult. As you can see here. Yeah. It's uh it's very hard to make it look this good.
3: Oh, well thank you. <laughs> I try.
2: <laughs> and how did you make it look this good?
3: Um well Trace Elements nineteen seventy one, um like the building was a catalyst for this show, as it always is for me. Like the context of the building, its history, um, The fact that so many people have lived their lives through here and worked here and made things here Um, I mean obviously there's a beautiful beautiful spectacle of the space itself so I I kind of started with the building and then I had a long list of artists and then I started thinking about it was about metamorphosis and transformation of spaces and environments and um, I wanted to bring people together that were like looking at buildings and architecture and uncovering them and tracing them um, so that was sort of the starting point really but also everyone in the show um, has an element of the industrial in their work
2: you can see that
3: yeah so there's steel there's glass there's wood there's expanding foam there's lampshades there's chairs um, so that there is a but they're very also very well crafted you know there's stone time became a real um, aspect of the show as we kind of came into the space more and like hearing more about the artist's ideas, so Richard Perry's stone is 350 million years old. Um, yeah, so there's all these traces of people. Andrea V. Wright's literally taken a cast of the wall, so she's going to be taking the building with her um, at the end of the show. Um, and that's sort of really amazing. And then I have a personal kind of collision of time in history with um, my grandfather worked here, my mother worked here and now I'm working here. So it's kind of generational too. So there's a sort of different intimate relationship yeah. with this space as well. You know, like these spirits are in here and where did they walk and where did they go? And
2: and was you aware yeah. that your family members had worked here previously?
3: I knew that my grandfather had but I didn't know my mum had. <laughs> she told me after and then another friend said that they'd, that you know, my uncle used to go cart around here and Another friend's dad worked here, and it's... Well, it's, it's a sugar factory, Tate and Lyle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, there's several their buildings, This not yeah. it? This is their warehouse. So this is a an old sugar factory. So again, there's a lot of site-specific work. Sasha Bowles made a piece that is about sugar, uh, in a way, or involves sugar. I mean, uh, so there's lots of kind of interplays with the narratives, really. There's sort of material inheritance with the works. Um, But yeah, and I also just wanted to work with some really great, collaborative, funny, talented artists.
2: Were (laughs) they aware of where it was going to be shown before they made their work?
3: Yeah, we had um, site visits. So we had three site visits and we kind of developed and developed, which almost everyone came to. We we sent them images, but not everything is site-specific, but the way that I've curated it is also about employing and kind of activating relationships between the works so it's not like they're all set apart from each other they're they're mingling and they're interwoven
2: yeah the job for the curator is to make that work have an additional narrative that fits in with its environment as well isn't it yeah
3: Uh, yeah. and that there is that aspect to it you know the, the building is one of the curators as well so to speak but yeah so that you're you're journeying through a space in a particular kind of way so that's kind of Something I really consider. But nothing was totally fixed. A few things were. But I need to see... I don't pin everything down and send somebody a spreadsheet and say, that goes there. <laughs> um, yeah. Some people do that. Um, I like to be in a space and see how it relates to the wall, to one another, the proximity of things. You know, Hermione all swaps how close those balls are to uh, her mantle deposits are to Richard Perry's sculpture or, yeah, how you journey through um, what you see behind... And in front of each artwork too so it's a lot of considerations really and you know day two I was like uh, maybe I've I've messed this up (laughs) because I just was scared that that maybe it wouldn't all work but um, that's just always what happens when you even start an artwork you're like day two it's going (laughs) it's going badly Um, but no I just was sort of I wanted to do when you're the curator there is that responsibility on you to make everything work as well as it can and you know uh, make it shine as much as you possibly can and I do feel like 100% that that is the case with this show you know without again without arrogance but just I'm super proud (laughs) and uh, I love
2: it. Yeah well the job of the curator is also to make it look like that the artwork has always been here that it's not been placed and I mean this more or less monolithic collage next to us here When I came in, w- w- sorry, I can't remember Sasha the Sasha Bowles. Sasha, she was um, a part of the way up when I first came in to have a look around, because yeah. I came in, a, I came in in the midweek to start my artwork, and um, yeah, this was part of the way up, and then I'd come in a, a few hours later, I'd pop back in again and see that it was like slightly higher, and and I'd see it grow over the week, but. I don't really know the story behind this artwork, so I'll ask you to tell well, us what you know. Yeah,
3: it's called Sugar Pineapple Cube, <laughs> so uh, again, sort of thinking about the history of this space, but also the history of sort of stately homes, um, and Sasha works in conservation, so she's often in a lot of stately homes, cleaning them and uh, but they're sort of these timeless things in a way they're sort of preserved in sort of preserved in their way and like actually the people that live there they don't really live there they're sort of like in a little room above or something if they're even there part of the furniture yeah and the, the idea that kind of there's loads of eyes in it so this idea of being watched and don't look don't touch yeah but yeah the sugar cubes kind of falling through and the pineapple was pineapples were um, there's all these kind of images of this sort of some people think it's a cone but it's a pineapple very similar looking thing but the pineapple was like a huge um, aspect of what Tate and Lyle would it kind of import export so to speak in terms of it was a big money maker for Tate and Lyle but it was this, this very used to be a very precious commodity so the pineapple was a sign of wealth um, because it cost so much to get it and people you used to take pineapples to parties to show off their wealth um, and <laughs> They used to have them in their houses or to show off their wealth on the outside, and then sort of again, the kind of accumulated histories of also where sugar, the history of sugar, slavery, and colonialism, and stately homes are kind of all interwoven and it's a lot to unpack, but that's that's sort of it in a way, but it's sort of subverting spaces too um so it's it's there's lots of history and narratives in there um and uh yeah, those are Sasha's eyes looking, <laughs> looking <out> at you, <laughs> over and over again.
2: And this space, I feel, other than the building where you first come in, in this warehouse, this is this is the the part that feels like a gallery. Oh right, yeah. Probably because of these um, <laughs> the stands that the artwork are on. Yeah, the but, um, yeah, it does. F- wandering through. That feels quite loose, and it was, to me, it felt nice coming into an area where it was um, more set out, like an environment that that I'm more used to. Oh,
3: thank you. I think I just wanted, um, like, I think I have curated in a gallery for a number of years, so I don't know if it's that, but it's not a gallery, gallery feel, it's more that there is. it's a quieter space than I think a lot of the other spaces maybe in the sense of um, there's quite a lot of room around things which we really wanted to keep Um, but yeah and and we used kind of these social distancing screens that Justin designed not because we wanted to partition off ourselves from the other spaces but to kind of allow for more subtle conversations to happen and I think you know, with Trace Elements it is a show that's about delicacy and sensitivity in a way to a, an environment and a building and to one another's work so I think that was kind of part of the underlying narrative
2: I suppose and this, the size of, of that work there is, what, what does it go up to? Maybe 15 feet? Maybe a little more?
3: Yeah, it's mounted on an actual staircase. So the idea is that you can go up the staircase when it doesn't have all (laughs) all my rubbish on it. Um, And you can have an aerial view. So when we had the site visit, Sasha immediately knew she wanted to work the staircase and have an aerial view of the show. So there's two staircases in here. But yeah, it's quite interesting because there is also a fire exit. This is also an oil stain over here. And so it could all go up in flames.
2: (laughs) But who'd think an artwork that size... Yeah. Could it, it doesn't get lost in here by any means but no. it doesn't feel as if it's nigh on 20 by 20 feet does it no it no it does feel like a, it sits in here very well
3: yeah and there was an interesting aspect of the fact that we had um Justin and I we do a lot of modular site-specific installations so we had these kind of gold dye bond that Sasha could use to kind of again bring in a new element to her work and the the like you say the conversation starts with a lot of the materials that we're using but also against the walls so you'll see this kind of gold dye bond that kind of threads throughout up to this point here where i did an intervention on the wall so even if you haven't noticed that is kind of part of me drawing your eye around to each aspect of the space really
2: well Um, when i knew there was going to be several curators in this in this building in this space I was a bit concerned that it might feel sort of like an art fair yeah. where you'd go into one part and then you'd you'd almost feel that you're walking into someone else's space. But that hasn't happened here at all. Everyone seems to sort of bleed into their neighbour, you know? Yeah. So it, it blurs the lines there, which, which I should have known was going to happen anyway. I mean, everyone's a curator, right? They know <laughs> what they're doing.
3: Well, uh, that's the thing I like. Like, from where we're sitting, you can see Richard Perry's sculpture and how
2: then oh oh no on. thank you you sort of like gave so much of your life so oh, thank really you. oh, oh thank, thank you oh thank you did you have
3: a question before you leave if you had something you wanted to ask
2: well I wanted to ask Gary how um, how you produce the, like the shoes work. does it just go online yeah how, d- how
3: yeah, do you that produce that the
2: shoes and show it well, it was. It was initially a performance. It, it was. Well, it wasn't even going to be a performance because I didn't even look at performance as being a part of it. I just saw the end result as being I was going to pour a plaster compound into the shoes and then um, sort of more or less dissect the shoes at their seams and pull out. So, so I've got like a, a negative, positive um, sculpture more or less, or, or two from each from each artist. Um, and then, it, it, even before the interruption of the Empathy Museum, I realised that it, w- it was about the performance, and, and I've never really been into performance art, and I sort of fell in love with it by proxy, you know. Um, so that's what it was going to be. It was going to be just that performance. Right. The the letters were never going to be shown to anyone. Right. And you're, you didn't write your response to, to No. No, although I did get um, several letters asking for a response. Oh, really? Yeah. And then what happened? I didn't respond. Well, I just, I I said that the judgment was mine.
3: Right, yeah, secret.
2: And, you know, if I tell them, they could tell someone else and then all of a sudden that, you know, other people are able to pass judgment on a story that they don't even know about. Right. And that wasn't going to be the thing, you know. It was going to be... Rather selfishly, just me passing that that judgment, you know. Oh, you're my more pleasure.
3: We will be publishing this somewhere. Um, um, in terms of a voice thing. I think. my cameras. You this Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. It's like you've got that dynamic, I think. It's oh, that's great. I mean. I've shown these artists before in other contexts largely, or I've taught them um so I've shown them in other shows, and it's always about um, also bringing in new people into so I don't just show the same people over and over again. I collaborate with my partner, so we often show together, obviously um but yeah, bringing in it wasn't just like who my art friends, you know, which I have many of them, but it was like what's going to really work in the space, and a lot of them are. I'd guess you'd say mid-career artists in a way, Um, but they're always experimenting. I suppose like Andrea V. Wright is probably the most recent graduate. She did an MA at Bath Spa a few years ago, and she was my student, and then she was in one of my shows, and so on and so forth. And um, yeah, so I've I've been watching them evolve as well. You know, Lisa Traxler was a student of mine because uh, I teach a lot in art schools and things and uh, she made this piece that was about her World War Two bunker and it was a perfect also seeing it at the perfect time when I was formulating the show uh, you know it, it's all intersected it's all about tracing a building so now it's tracing another building in a way so yeah I'm glad you you've enjoyed it <laughs> thank you so much somebody can have a chair now if your, if your bottoms are cold <laughs> We don't have enough chairs, so I'm um, sorry about that, guys. There are some sweets to keep you going, though. Um, do hand them around, yeah. So, what, um, what are the
2: joys of being an artist for you? Oh, it's changed my life. It's absolutely changed my life. And I, that's not a, just a, a wild statement. It has changed my identity. Because people that knew me before i become an artist they will say I'm a totally different person because before as I said I was a minder a doorman anything that was big and thuggy was was what I'd done and and I was a criminal and it was everything that went along with being a criminal right. and then the, the switch from that when I was in prison wanting to become an artist I couldn't bring that with me into the art world because it just isn't accepted so or I wanted to change anyway and so that was it I've just changed myself to a completely different person and the way I can see how much it has changed is the fact that my children now who are 17 and just turned 15 they are really nice funny, compassionate empathetic, they're they're just lovely kids, they're the kids that I would have wanted years ago Mm. but if I would have stayed the same person, I would have probably had photocopies of the old me, the me that I've, I've even given the old me a name of Roy Maynard, because that's the name I used to give the police and sign in to, into uh, hotels and that with. If, it would have, if I would have stayed the old me, Roy Maynard, they wouldn't have been that. They would have just been photocopies of me, very probably. Mm. and they're not that so I've broken that chain because my dad was a criminal um and and yes it's it's broken that chain my kids aren't going to be that so if that's the I was getting a little bit emotional then (laughs) if that's (laughs) if that can be the only thing that art has done for me then brilliant it's changed the course of of what was there Mm
3: it saved you as definitely, well definitely yeah. definitely
2: i'm a completely different person i've got completely different outlooks um i'm a, whatever anyone thinks of me i'm i feel like i'm a, a a nice person compared to the old you know i can vouch for that and I wasn't i wasn't <laughs> a bad i wasn't too much of a bad person then but yeah
3: so tell us about the work here, because that ties in rather nicely. Domestic Waste, which is out with um, Skip Gallery. How did the relationship happen? And then your piece that you're showing here at Trace Elements. Oh, sorry, not Trace Elements. <laughs> <laughs> the how factory. Big,
2: how big-headed <laughs> are you? <No>. <laughs> 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 the Factory, but I just keep saying it on social media all the time, and
3: it's like in my brain. Um, yeah, at Thorpe Stavry, The Factory. Well, I
2: run a podcast called The Ministry of Arts Podcast. Um, and I speak to artists from homeless artists trying using art to get off the street to pretty much turn prize winners, the ones who wrote to me when I was in jail, and everyone in between. And during that, I'd seen... A couple of years ago, I saw the Skip Gallery in Hoxton Square. Never seen them before. Walked into Hoxton Square, saw a skip with a Richard Woods house sticking out of it. I presumed it was Richard Woods' um, project. I thought it was brilliant. I, I love the... Accessibility of art and the inclusivity of art, and seeing art in a skip—it just doesn't get any more inclusive than that. And um, yeah, then I saw that it was something called the Skip Gallery, so I sort of followed them, and and I just loved everything about it. And um, a while later, I had the opportunity—I got, I got introduced to Catherine, who runs the Skip Gallery, via um, an artist called Sarah Maple. Um, just got introduced online. Um, and I asked her to come on my podcast. Got on like a house on fire with Catherine, and I said to her, I "said Well, when I was in jail, I had an idea of building a prison cell on top of a skip, um, and that was about as far as it went." And she said, "Well, see if you can find." Oh, sorry, I mentioned that it was in an old notebook that I had when I was in prison, an old sketchbook. And I said I'll try and dig it out. She said, "Well, if I speak to Lee, her partner in Skip Gallery, in." A few weeks time um try and dig this sketch out which i did um and as much as it was a, a good idea i was still planning to do it here they invited me to make the cell the prison cell in a skip because i discovered um that a prison skip is prison skip fucking hell that a prison cell um i had a government diagram of a prison cell and it was 1.8 meters by 3.5 meters and then when the skip gallery sent me through the sizes of skips one of them was like 1.8 meters by 3.5 meters and it's the same size as a prison cell and like you know we have these skips outside our house and I thought well what better way to try and sort of make people have a little bit of empathy for the for the guys in prison than to show them an actual rubbish refuse skip you know and and I was hoping that when people see the, the skip, a skip, after this event, they might think of two people living in that skip. And it, the, the more I looked at this artwork, it, it transpired that that measurement for the, um, for the skip, the floor plan, was 6.3 square metres. And then I discovered... Um, and that's for, t- for two grown adults in a, in a prison cell and then I discovered that um, there's a government guideline for keeping dogs weighing 35 kilos and above. They have to have eight square meters. And I was like, fucking hell, as much as we all love dogs, there's two adults here in 6.3 meters, and we've got to give a dog eight. And I know that the, the guys you know, got themselves there for, for whatever reasons in, in the prison something just isn't right there you know so as much as i was going to build the prison cell initially with the prison furniture i decided no i'll just put that floor plan in there as basic and as simple as i could get so i just reproduced the floor plan in wood and um and then even put the i don't know if anyone's seen it i've even put the tape that extends it to 8 square meters on the floor and the the Skip Gallery is all about bold um, artwork. So as soon as you see the Skip Gallery, they're bold, they're big, they're colourful. I was a bit concerned because I was well aware that mine was going to be quite muted and more for for someone to to sort of think about and contemplate rather than the well factor, which is straight off with with most of the skips. Mm. But I've had a I've had very good very good response from it.
3: It's a really powerful piece.
2: I hope so. Yeah.
3: I think uh I think art should be there in a way to also make you think whether that's about an experience or your own history or um of life or shared experience or knowledge of other things that you don't know about but I think um it's very moving, and I think actually one of the things about trying to run away from being an artist <laughs> was that um I saw, and I know you had a similar experience with Francis Bacon, but I saw um, at Tate the crucifixion, which is three Francis Bacon, uh, the triptych of this kind of screaming monster, and it was terrifying and horrifying and made me scared and then I was also like isn't that brilliant (laughs) isn't that brilliant that a piece of art can make you feel that way it was like the stuff of my nightmares but somebody had captured the nightmares and you know I don't want to look at that in my my life all the time but I just thought how profound and it was also like at the same time I was looking at people like Frida Kahlo and about how she used the tragedies of her life in her work and in her narratives or today I went to see Paula Rego and you know these kind of the power of what you can do with art and I think is a wonderful, beautiful thing and a joy and we're all trying to kind of...
2: Well, I know it sounds a little bit far-fetched but I feel like it's... Because of what prison has given me, as ironic as it sounds, mm-hmm. it changed my life. Oh, it's me that changed my life. Yeah. But being in prison made me stop and evaluate my life because I wouldn't have done that when I was out because I was having too much of a good time to evaluate, you know. I wouldn't want it to change. Yeah. But... I've, I genuinely feel like I've got a moral obligation to sort of tell that story, and not, not about n- not me, you know, not telling that story about me, but trying to sort of change people's perceptions of people in prison, because it, it, I'm an ex-prisoner, and when people think about people that have been to prison. Too many, too many people of, of the opinion just you know, f- lock them up and throw away the key and that's, it's that attitude that the, the British have got with the prison system which is one of the reasons that our prison system is in such a bad um, state because the government the MPs don't want to do anything proactive because there's normally a backlash from sort of like, a, you know, like the Daily Mail reader as it were um, to give them less or, or punish them more while they're in jail and it's, it's really not the case there's so many people that I still associate with now that I knew from prison or that I've met who are ex-prisoners that are just trying to just change people's attitude a little bit and we've all sort of in, indirectly sort of we're of the opinion that if you try to change people's attitudes towards prison Reoffending um, ex-prisoners. If if you change their attitude, then it will sort of filter up, and um, yeah, that's sort of what I'm trying to do.
3: Yeah, I think the um, start looking at things like the American justice system or injustice system. I think in terms of prisoners and inmates, so it's quite shocking. A friend of mine works within with a foundation that deals with kind of social issues, but it's an art gallery. Um, and uh, and just reading around subjects about people being imprisoned and, and so on, it's it's heartbreakingly sad, you know. Um, it, like you say, you wouldn't treat animals that way.
2: Yeah, and no, I'm not going to go down the no. criminal justice <laughs> line, but I mean that like the Netherlands are shut in prisons because there's not enough prisoners to put in there, yeah. and we're trying to sort of. I'm surprised this hasn't been turned into one because you could get a few se- quite a few cells in here, you know. Yeah. but yeah they're looking at building more and yeah i'm just trying to change attitudes in a little way yeah, yeah um might be a little chip on my shoulder that i want i don't want people to be thinking bad of me but um you know, I've, I've had so many people just go oh, well you're different you know and i said well i'm not different i'm the same as as that kid in as that as that young kid in in brixton or that that you know that that young girl in in, in you know newcastle we've all just got out of prison and, and everyone deserves a second chance and if you're having that rug pulled out you from beneath your feet all the time and people not giving you a second chance you can't grow as a person, you know So
3: have you managed to um, help turn other people into artists? You're, like from, ex- what, from prisoners? Yeah, from prisoners
2: I've, I've not heard about r- artists <laughs> but I've got, where I've gone into prison and I've said to, to the cons in there just do anything creative just don't sit in your cell looking at the ceiling. You'll just end up being bitter and twisted. Just try and have a have a creative mind. Try and do something. And I've had two emails um, from young guys that I when I'd gone into prisons to do these talks. One of them had said that he was going that he's now at college doing a I can't remember if it was plumbing or plastering course um, that he's decided to get out of the gangs and turn his back on them and. And um, after that talk there, so th- that was one guy. And then another guy come up to me in the street and asked if I was Gary Mansfield, and I'd said yes. And uh, he was saying to me, uh, I'd sort of changed his life after that, you know, and now he's, it, it, it turns out he was in a dark place at the time and he was going to contemplate in doing something stupid. And just by chance, whatever I'd said to him that day or whatever he'd heard me say to the class that day, Had resonated with him and stopped him doing something stupid and um i didn't remember him at all which i felt really bad about but yeah he was so so grateful to me like shaking my hand with both hands you know and yeah so it makes a difference going in there and people listening
3: no that's amazing well thank you so much gary for coming and doing any conversation um Ministry of Arts podcast is Gary's podcast, um, which is great. Uh, number one hundred is Gary interviewing himself, it was. which is performance piece in itself. <laughs> and um, and loads of other interesting people on on the uh, on Ministry of Arts. Um, tomorrow, uh, again, this won't be relevant later on, but uh, tomorrow is the closing day for the Factory. Uh, we have uh, Trace Elements, nineteen seventy one. Got. Um, events happening from three Uh, so we've got an in conversation with all the artists in the show and then we've got the wonderful Jamal Sterrett doing a performance with our sculpture uh, at five uh, for the last sort of well the the last hour basically Um, you're the finale yeah he's the finale (laughs) Um, yeah it's all free and just book in either through me and my talk page or Thorpe Stavry whichever uh, just so they won't turn you away if it's full up make sure that you can uh Come in, um, but yeah, enjoy the rest of the show if you haven't seen it, and thank you again, Gary. Oh, it's thank been you such much. a pleasure. It's been good fun. Oh, uh, and thank you all um, for coming. So yeah, <laughs> cheers.
2: There you go. How cool is Rosalind Davis? And what a perfect place to record our first ever live episode. And I wanted to be the first to let you know that Rosalind and I have recorded our own version of Islands in the Stream. And we're going for Christmas number one. Although there will definitely be something out this Christmas that would have made ours the preferred option. But if you want to see more work by Rosalind Davis, you can go over to her Instagram, which is at Rosalind N L Davis. And while you're there, take a look at Trace Elements 1971. There's a great little video there where Rosalind walks you through the exhibition. Right, well that's about it from me for this week. Because we've got a little bit of rehearsing to do. Hit it, Roz. ta off for now. See you next week. Right, let's do this. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media anything is appreciated but either way thanks for listening and until next week sad